Good evening, everybody. I want to welcome everybody to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Today, we are going to be going over the text by Comrade Joseph Stalin called Mastering Bolshevism. We can start with Section 1 under Mastering Bolshevism. Section 1. Comrades, it can be seen from the reports and the discussion on them at the plenium that we are dealing here with the following three basic First, the wrecking and diversive spying work of the agents of foreign countries, among whom the Trotskyites played an active enough role, affected to some degree or other all or almost all our organizations, both economic, administrative, and party. Second, the agents of foreign countries among the Trotskyites penetrated not only into the lower organizations, but also into some responsible positions. Third, some of our leading comrades, both in the center and in the localities, were not only unable to recognize the real faces of these wreckers, diversionists, spies, and murderers, but they were so careless, complacent, and naive that not infrequently they themselves assisted the agents of foreign powers to get into various responsible positions. These are three indisputable facts which naturally arise from the reports and the discussion on them. Number one, political carelessness. How can it be explained that our leading comrades who have a rich experience of struggle against every kind of anti-party and anti-Soviet trend prove to be so blind and naive in this case that they were unable to recognize the real face of the enemies of the people, were unable to discern the wolves in sheep's clothing, were unable to tear the mask from them. Can it be stated that the wrecking and diversional spying work of the agents of foreign powers who were busy on the territory of the USSR could be something unexpected and unprecedented for us. No, this cannot be stated. This is shown by the wrecking acts in various branches of national economy during the past 10 years, starting with the Shakti period, which are set out in official documents. Can it be stated that we have lately had no warning signals and forewarning directives about the wrecking, spying, or terroristic activity of the Trotskyite Zinoviavite agents of fascism? No, this cannot be stated. There were such signals, and Bolsheviks have no right to forget them. The foul murder of Comrade Kirov 
was the first serious warning showing that the enemies of the people will practice duplicity and in doing so will disguise themselves as Bolsheviks, as party members, so as to warm their way into our competence and open a path for themselves into our organizations. The trial of the Leningrad Center, like the Zinoviev-Kamev trial, provided new foundations for the lessons arising from the fact of the foul murder of Comrade Kirov. The trial of the Zinovievite Trotskyite bloc extended the lessons of the previous trials, plainly showing that the Zinoviavites and Trotskyites unite around themselves all the hostile bourgeois elements, that they become the spying and diversionistic, terroristic agency of the German secret police, that double dealing and concealment are the only means by which the Zinoviavites and Trotskyites can penetrate into our organization. The vigilance and political keenness are the truest means of preventing such penetration for the liquidation of the Zinoviavite Trotskyite gang. In relation to the Trotskyite Zinoviavite trials, one specific person, a man named Alexei Rykov, who was the man who succeeded Stalin as the chair of the Council of People's Commissars of the Soviet Union. He was effectively the leader of the Soviet Union for a time, and he was largely in charge of the economic policies that led up to many of the problems that Stalin ended up having to fix, and he caused quite a few of the problems that Stalin is talking about here. One of the big things was his idea that he needed to increase taxes on things like alcohol to try and fund the economy, which was not working. And it just made everybody from party leadership to the peasantry upset. He was an ally of Bukharin, and he was arrested in February of 1937, I believe around the same time this book was published, actually, along with Bukharin. And both of them were found guilty in 1938 for treason. It turned out that him and Bukharin were both plotting against the Soviet Union, and that was why they had the policies that they had. They were purposely trying to sabotage the Soviet Union with these bad policies. These policies didn't just seem bad, they were bad on purpose. The book Mission to Moscow is the diary of the American ambassador to the Soviet Union at that time. His name was Joseph Davies. He was a trial lawyer himself before he became an ambassador. And it's very important I mention that. Warner Brothers made a movie by the same name, Mission to Moscow. I urge people to get it. It's in black and white. Very, very historically correct. But in this Mission to Moscow, Joseph Davies was at the trials. He was an observer at the trials, and he was a lawyer. And so he said it's the fairest trials he's ever seen, contrary to what the anti-Soviet people in the United States, specifically the followers of Trotsky, 
were saying, and the followers of Trotsky, they got together a group of liberals called the Dewey Commission, named after the Dewey Decimal System guy, John Dewey, who made the Dewey Decimal System in the library. I don't know if young people use that anymore. Anyway, you should get the book, read it, because it's the American ambassador talking, not a communist, and he's saying that the trials were very fair. They were not forced trials. These men were guilty. Remember what they were tried for. They were not tried for being Trotskyites. People forget that. The trials in the late 30s is the evidence that came across that they were working with the Germans and the Japanese and the Italians. They were working with them. The idea was to divide the Soviet Union into three sections. This is not strange. They did the same thing in France by dividing it into two sections, the Vichy government and the occupied France. That's what they wanted to do. In Croatia, they set up a separate government, and they put at the head of the government fascists. They did the same thing. That's in Yugoslavia, Croatia. And they did the same things in other parts of the world that they took over. That's the point. The point is that they wanted to divide the Soviet Union into three sections, one led by Bukharin, the famous father of the new economic policy, which is market socialism. That's Bukharin. And the other two was under the leadership of Trotsky. And that's it. I'll end it there. A summary of who Zinoviev or Kamenov is in the Zinoviev-Kamenov trial. I don't quite remember who Zinoviev is. He was the head of the Comintern. Kamenev, on the other hand, Kamenev was one of the people who was originally in Stalin's inner circle. He had originally helped him expel Trotsky. He had in secret been working with Trotsky. Kamenev was the person who created the cult of personality around Stalin. He built it up to a point of complete ridiculousness. And that was one of the reasons that he ended up getting expelled from the party. He ended up getting arrested and executed was because they found out that he was doing all of this terrible stuff on purpose. Similar, he was working with Bukharin, Rykov, and all those people in this Trotskyite group to attempt to overthrow Stalin. It's talking about a group that was called the Group of 15, or they also called themselves the Group of Democratic Centralism. They called themselves that to try and fool people into thinking that they were the correct way of doing things. They were people who supported the continuation of the new economic policy. They formed originally in 1919 at the Eighth Party Congress, and they stuck around until the late 30s with the Great Purge. And unsurprisingly, it was obviously people like Zinoviev, Kamenev, Rykov, and those sorts of people. But it even managed to attract people that you wouldn't normally expect, such as Nadia Krupskaya, Lenin's wife. Many of these people ended up getting fooled by Trotsky's ideas, or they themselves were just wreckers, and they formed this clique within the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, some of them possibly thinking that they were doing the right thing, but the majority of them actually trying to 
destroy the Soviet Union. I don't necessarily know how connected or at the top level Kamenev and Zinoviev were to what I'm about to say, but essentially there was a lot of sabotage in terms of economic destruction within the Soviet Union. They would blow up railways, they would pour quartzsand into conveyor belts and giant industrial plants, destroying mines, destroying factories. They would short-circuit things and make things blow up, deliberately destroying economic capital that would otherwise be used to produce for the Soviet economy, and basically anything that would halt production and serve as antithetical to what the Soviet Union was trying to do in an economic and productive sense. I think this is the main reason why I'm a Marxist-Leninist and not an anarchist, because the anarchists don't have any way of defending the revolution after it's occurred from other elements, from infiltrating the party and doing harm to the movement and anything. But we as Marxist-Leninists do have a plan to prevent that from happening and defending the revolution and continue progressing towards communism after we've installed socialism. And that's basically why I've never been an anarchist and never will be. Thank you, comrade. So I kind of understand Trotsky's political line, but I haven't seen very much about Zinoviev. I know they're both opportunists, but anyone can answer this. In your analysis, what was Zinoviev's political line? The problem with all of them, they were called the Bloc, B-L-O-C. They were called the Bloc. They were together on one thing only, and that was how to get rid of Stalin. That's what their Bloc was. And they were willing to do anything to go outside of democratic centralism to get rid of Stalin. Remember, Stalin offered to step down a couple of times from the leadership of the party, and each time the people in the leadership role, I think it was the Politburo, told him, no, you have to stay in right now. And so disregarding that decision, these individuals would join together. And what was the difference? If you've seen the movie Reds, and I urge everybody to see the movie with Warren Beatty, called Reds, R-E-D-S, it's all about John Reed and his support for the revolution in 1917 in Russia. But if you see that movie, you'll see that Zinoviev comes up. He was the head of the Comintern for a while. And you can see his disregarding the fact that we have human responsibilities to our families, to our loved ones, significant others. And Zinoviev said basically threw cold water on that. That's the first time we actually see too much of him. Thank you. What year was this book published? 37. Is there a strong presence of Trotskyite, Zinovievite? Are those elements really present in today's politics, or are they weak just because communism is weak here? And does that sort of element grow as the party grows? If someone else has an answer, they can chime in as well. Zinoviev is not really a practical movement today. The only real reason that Zinoviev is being talked about here is because he was one of the premier people in the anti-Soviet bloc within the Soviet Union itself, but he didn't necessarily have his own ideology, so we say. That was more so Trotsky. So there's lots of Trotskyist groups that exist now. Like, you're not going to find any Zinovievite groups that exist within the United States. But to my knowledge and to my understanding, Trotskyism is an ultra-leftist deviation from Marxism. And number one, it's based on hating the Soviet Union and saying that the Soviet Union wasn't actually socialism and that we're going to bring out a different, better kind of socialism that wasn't the Soviet Union and wasn't in previously existing socialist countries. 
that's sort of the main thesis of Trotskyism, and their groups are pretty prevalent today in the mainstream left. Number one, Trotskyism is big in the countries where the Communist Party is small. And I'll give you the two countries, England and United States. Trotskyism proliferates because every other group is a Trotskyite group. You have two groups here on the left, the Maoists and the Trotskyites. We see the Maoists as a modern version of the Trotskyites. Remember, Maoism hated the Soviet Union from 1953 till the end, 1991. That's half of the Soviet Union. And the Trotskyites hated it the other half, 1928 to 1953. So both of them are on the same boat. Comrade is correct on that. But uh, as far as the book, Left-Wing Communism, An Infantile Disorder, I urge people to look at it, get it from New Outlook Publishers, Left-Wing Communism, An Infantile Disorder by Comrade Lenin, explains what the ultra-left is. Thank you. In the period that Comrade Stalin is talking about there, later in the book, Comrade Stalin also goes into detail about the characteristics and the growth of the Trotskyist movement and the various stages that it went through. But if we read also Comrade Lenin's The Differences in the European Labor Movement, especially during the time that Lenin was writing that, he was talking about how these movements would spur up as a result of the differences in industry and capital where it's invested in the growth and decline of capital. And so after the revolution in Russia, these elements, these petty bourgeois elements that are mainly the elements that lead these fringe movements were consolidating behind Trotsky. And that was the main source of the Trotskyist movement then. And today, the main source of the Trotskyist movement is what Comrade Stalin would call a political movement. It is not yet wrecking, but as time goes on and through the struggle, things will start to clear themselves, and the only way for the Trotskyists to remain relevant is through wrecking behavior because it ceased to be a political trend and it's moved into political wrecking. On the murder of Kirov, I just wanted to know more context, how it happened. I would urge people to get Grover for his book on the Kirov assassination, and he explains why it was obvious, and the connections of why was the followers of Trotsky. The Trotsky people and the bourgeoisie were trying to say that Stalin killed Kirov, and it goes into great explanation with facts and figures why that's impossible. Thank you. A little bit more context on who exactly Zinoviev and Kamenev were and why they were so nefarious in their ways. So going back all the way to the October Revolution, they were the two main party leaders who initially were opposed to the October Revolution. Later on, evidently, they were able to rejoin the party after the revolution had been a success. But Lenin himself at first chastised them and actually expelled them from the party. But when they were allowed to rejoin, as we know, they joined up with Trotsky and therefore also held his defeatist position that it was impossible to build socialism in one country. And this was the united opposition, they called it. And then further on, they basically followed the cycle of lengthy debate with the real Leninists in the party, getting exiled for these counter-revolutionary ideas, 
and then returning and being allowed to go back into positions of party power because the party believed in criticism and self-criticism. Perhaps they were naive in a sense because these individuals really did end up being profoundly nefarious and problematic, but perhaps they were too lenient on them. The Central Committee of the CPSU, in its closed letter of January 18, 1935, regarding the foul murder of Comrade Kirov, gave a resolute warning to the party organizations against political complacency and parochial gaping. It says in the closed letter, we must put an end to opportunist complacency arising from the mistaken perception that in proportion to the growth of our forces, the enemy will grow even tamer and more inoffensive. Such a precipitation is basically wrong. It is a belch of the right deviation, which assured everyone that the enemies would quietly creep into socialism, that in the long run they would become real socialists. It is not the business of the Bolsheviks to rest on their laurels and stand around gaping. It is not complacency that we need, but vigilance. Real Bolshevik revolutionary vigilance. It must be remembered that the more desperate the position of the enemies, the more willing they will be to seize on extreme measures as the only measures of doomed people in their struggles against Soviet power. We must remember this and be vigilant. In the closed letter of July 29, 1936, regarding the spying and terroristic activities of the Trotskyite Zinoviavite bloc, the Central Committee of the CPSU called on the party organization to show the maximum vigilance to be able to recognize the enemies of the people, no matter how well met. It says in the closed letter, Now, when it has been proved that the Trotskyite Zinoviavite scum unite all the most bitter and sworn enemies of the working people of our country, spies, agents, provocateurs, diversionists, white guards, kulaks, etc. In the struggle against Soviet power, when every distinguishing mark has been obliterated between these elements on the one hand and the Trotskyites and Zinoviavites on the other, all our party organizations all members of the party must understand that the vigilance of communists is necessary in every field and in all situations. An indispensable quality of every Bolshevik in the present conditions must be the ability to recognize the enemy 
of the party, no matter how well he be masked. So signals and warnings were given. What did these signals and warnings call for? They called for the liquidation of the weakness of party organizational work and the conversion of the party into an impregnable fortress in which not a single double dealer could penetrate. They called for putting a stop to the underestimation of party political work and making a resolute turn in the direction of strengthening such work to the utmost, in the direction of strengthening political vigilance. And what happened? The facts have shown that our comrades took in these signals and warnings with more than stiffness. This is eloquently shown by all the facts which we know from the sphere of the campaign for verifying and exchanging party documents. It talks about calls to help with vigilance and to become that impregnable fortress. What were some things that the Bolsheviks did in order to create an impregnable fortress out of their party? Comrade Dzinski actually very famously worked to try and do this. It was in his last speech. One must not fear criticism or gloss over shortcomings. On the contrary, it is necessary to help make them known and to see nothing discreditable in doing so. Only he can be discredited who conceals his shortcomings, who is unwilling to fight against evils. That is precisely the man who ought to be discredited. It is necessary to be able to see the truth and to imbibe it from the masses and from all who are taking part in production. There is nothing worse than self-praise and self-satisfaction. It is possible to go forward only when, step by step, evils are sought out and overcome. At the same time, an end must be put to our established practice of humoring the masses, the workers. It should be remembered that in our country, the workers, like ourselves, are not yet cultured, that often their group interests outweigh the interests of the working class as a whole. Often they do not sufficiently realize that only their own useful labor, the productivity of their labor, can create the communist state maintain their Soviet power. Every economic manager should wage a struggle to win prestige, to win the confidence of the working masses, but the struggle for this confidence should on no account employ the instrument of demagogy, of humoring the masses, satisfying them to the detriment and at the expense of the state, of the interests of the alliance with the peasants, of the parochial requirements, the path of demagogy is perhaps the most harmful path, lulling the masses, deflecting them from the main task of the working class in production, diminishing the sacrifices the working class has made 
and in the final analysis, one which is harmful for our industry. Comment just read from Felix Jasinski, and let me tell you who he was. He was the head of the secret police, and his job was to protect the revolution from counter-revolutionaries. That was Felix's job. There was a big statue of him in front of the big building, the prison, in Moscow. When the counter-revolution happened in 1991, they took down that statue. The Yeltsin people took it down. New Outlook Publishers has that book. From 1919, the Western countries sent an expeditionary force, an invasion, into the northern part of Russia. This was after the revolution, 1917. And there was 14 countries, bourgeois countries. They landed in Murmansk and the area of Archangel, those two cities. And they tried to destroy the revolution. One of the people that led it was Churchill, Winston Churchill. And he was from England, the same Churchill who talked about the beaches, we're going to fight him on the beaches, or that guy. And his quote was, we got to destroy the Bolshevik baby in its cradle now. That was his quote, destroy the Bolshevik baby now, because he feared what it would happen if the baby was allowed to grow up. And they failed. The people were not going to go with them, so that invasion was a failure. But out of that invasion came the famous name of Smedley Butler. Nobody should know that name. Who wrote this famous book. He was the general in the U.S. Army from the Marine Corps. And he said that we are gangsters for world capitalism. That's Smedley Butler who said that. The same one that when he was a young fellow right. leading the invasion force in Russia. So they were surrounded. And don't kid yourself. NATO, from the very beginning, was supposed to surround the socialist countries. And now its aim is to surround Russia. So the West made very clear that they were going to surround Russia like they did in Cuba, like they're doing with Venezuela. This is an old tactic of the international capitalist bourgeois elements to destroy the revolution economically. So... Comrade Stalin was correct. The fear that he had of enemies coming around. That's all I want to say. When Stalin was writing this, we need to look beyond, while also considering the immediate context that this pamphlet was written in. It was, of course, written out of response to a situation with Zinoviev and the murder. But Stalin is outlining a far more broader set of principles and lesson here. He's saying that political carelessness is begot from political ignorance, which is why the political development of cadre is so important. And so if these cadre were more politically developed, and they would be able to notice what the Trotskyites were doing. In regards to what we're calling spies, other than vigilance, what would you recommend we do against them today? We don't have that problem right now, comrades. It doesn't make sense to have that problem. We don't have state power, so they had to have spies to take down the early Soviet Republic. We don't have that now. We're not a big party yet. Remember, spies did not come into the communist movement 
until 1920, 21, not in 1919 when they first started. And there was very, very few spies that came into the movement. Those that did come in was working for the U.S. government, not for any other left-wing groups. Today we have a different situation. I really feel strongly about this, that we don't have that situation of spies. The only spies we would have are from the old party. The old party does send people into our party to take a barometer of what's going on. We found this out. They're here to wreck the party just the way they did in the beginning. They're afraid of us, unfortunately, because they know that we're carrying on what they were, what the old party was. And that's my feeling. We don't have to worry about that right now. Our main fear right now is getting overconfident in what we've done so far to become what Stalin said, dizzy with success. We're going to go into the next section of reading. How can it be explained that these warnings and signals did not produce the proper action? How can it be explained that our party comrades, in spite of their experience of struggle against anti-Soviet elements, in spite of a whole series of warning signals and forewarning directives, proved to be politically short-sighted in the face of the wrecking and spying diversive work of the enemies of the people. Is it that our party comrades have become worse than they were before, have become less conscientious and disciplined? No, of course not. Is it that they have begun to degenerate? Again, no. Such a supposition is completely unfounded. Then what is the matter? Whence arises such gaping, carelessness, complacency, blindness. The fact is that our party comrades, carried away by economic campaigns and by enormous successes on the front of economic construction, simply forgot some very important facts which Bolsheviks have no right to forget. They forgot one fundamental fact from the sphere of the international position of the USSR and did not notice two very important facts which apply directly to the present wreckers, spies, diversionists, and murderers sheltering behind the party card and disguised as Bolsheviks. The takeaway for me was his emphasis on we are forgetting the international perspective, that that's where, of course, all of the problems may come. And I keep on forgetting that myself because I figure nationally we have enough problems, but we really and this really drives it home for me, we really have to consider the whole international perspective, especially the enemies. Where does Yezov come in these trials? I had read previously that a lot of these claims of, oh, 
this was a human rights abuse or whatever happy old mistakes were in part led by Yuzov, and that's why he was dismissed by Stalin. So I was just wondering if, where does he come in in all of this? A lot of young people think revolution is romantic. They think it's great. Let me tell you something, comrade. It has a lot of pitfalls, a lot of problems during a revolutionary period. It happens in every revolution, including the American Revolution. Innocent people were accused of being supporters of the king, and they weren't. And they were tarred and feathered. Let me tell you what tarred and feathered is. When you get tarred, all the pores in your body stop. You can't get through the burning. You get burns. They're second degree. And then they put feather. The feathering is nothing. It's the tarring that kills you. And so during every revolution, the French Revolution, innocent people lost their heads. Don't think the Russian Revolution was any different. But we have to understand, revolution is the last attempt to salvage one's life. It becomes so intolerable. That's when the revolution happens. And so innocent people got caught up in the fervor in Russia. Some of them were innocent. Some were not. Some were. And the guy that you're talking about was put in charge of a lot of the police. And he used that period to get rid of his own personal enemies. He was found out by Stalin. And he was dismissed. Grover Fur wrote a good book on who this guy was that you mentioned. Thank you. The book that Angela is referencing is called Blood Lies. And specifically in that book, it talks about how Yezhov was essentially responsible for terrorizing civilians under the guise of, we're going to go get out wreckers and traitors and spies. He was actually just going around fomenting discord within the Soviet Union as sort of an anti-government ploy. Capitalist encirclements. What are these facts which our party comrades forgot, or which they simply did not notice. They forgot that Soviet power has conquered only one-sixth of the world, that five-sixths of the world is in the possession of capitalist powers. They forgot that the Soviet Union is in the conditions of capitalist encirclement. It is an accepted thing to talk loosely about capitalist encirclement, but people do not want to ponder upon what sort of a thing this capitalist encirclement is. Capitalist encirclement, that is no empty phrase. That is a very real and unpleasant feature Capitalist encirclement means that here is one country, the Soviet Union, which has established the socialist order on its own territory. And besides this, there are many countries, bourgeois countries, which continue to carry on a capitalist mode of life and which surround the Soviet Union, waiting for an opportunity to attack it, break it, or at any rate to undermine its power and weaken it. Our comrades 
forgot this fundamental fact. But it is that precisely which determines the basis of relations between the capitalist encirclement and the Soviet Union. Take, for example, the bourgeois states. Simple-minded people may think that extremely good relations will reign between them, as between states of the same type. But only simple-minded people can think so. In reality, the relations between them are far from being those of good neighbors. It has been proved as plainly as two and two make four that the bourgeois states shower their spies, wreckers, diversionists, and sometimes murderers on each other behind their frontiers, give them instructions to worm themselves into the factories and institutions of these states, to create their own network there, and in case of necessity, to smash them from the rear so as to weaken them and undermine their power. Such is the case at the present time. This is the second part of the chapter, Capitalist Encirclement. Such, too, has been the case in the past. Take, for example, the countries of Europe at the time of Napoleon I. France at that time was swarming with spies and diversionists from the camp of the Russians, Germans, Austrians, and English. And at that time, England, the German states, Austria, and Russia had behind their lines no fewer spies and diversionists from the French camp. Agents of Great Britain twice made attempts on the life of Napoleon and several times roused the peasants of the Vendee in France against the government of Napoleon. And what was Napoleon's government? A bourgeois government which had strangled the French Revolution and retained only those results of the revolution which were profitable to the big bourgeoisie. Needless to say, Napoleon's government did not remain indebted to its neighbors. It also undertook its own diversional measures. Such was the case in the past 130 years ago. Such is the case now. 130 years after Napoleon I. France and England at the present day are swarming with German spies and diversionists. And on the other hand, Anglo-French spies and diversionists are in turn at work in Germany. America is swarming with Japanese spies and diversionists, and Japan with American. Such is the law of relations between bourgeois states. The question must be put, why should the bourgeois countries be gentler and more neighborly to the socialist Soviet government than they are to their fellow bourgeois states of their own type? Why should they send fewer spies, fewer wreckers, and fewer diversionists and murderers behind the frontiers of the Soviet Union than they send behind the frontiers of bourgeois countries which are akin to them? Where did you get this from? Will it not be truer from the point of view of Marxism to suppose that the bourgeois states must be sending twice or three times as many wreckers, spies, diversionists, and murderers behind the lines of the Soviet Union than behind those of any bourgeois state? Is it not clear that as long as capitalist circlement exists, there will be wreckers, spies, diversionists, and murderers in our country sent behind our lines by the agents of foreign states? Our party comrades forgot about this.
and having forgotten, were caught unaware. This is why the spying and diversive work of the Trotskyite agents of the Japanese and German secret police were completely unexpected by some of our comrades. This caught my eye. He asked these questions. He says, is it that our comrades have become worse than they were before? They've become less conscientious and disciplined? Is that they have begun to degenerate? What is the matter? What arises such gaping carelessness? He's talking about the material impact that the growth of socialism in the Soviet Union is having on the people and the party. So it's not necessarily that these people are actively diminishing and becoming less revolutionary. Certain sects of the party definitely are, and they're forming a bloc. Obviously, the Zenobia of Trotsky bloc. But he's talking about the rank-and-file comrades who are still loyal to the revolution in Russia, still loyal to the revolution in the Soviet Union, but can be easily duped by the factions that are forming that are antagonistic to it. So I think Comrade Stalin is being very dialectical in his analysis right here. Reading this section about how bourgeois states act with each other versus how they act with socialist countries, the degree at which they send saboteurs and spies and assassins between themselves, you can materially see how intensified it is when it comes to socialist countries. And also trying to pretend like they have good relations with the country, like when they go to summits after assassinating Qasem Soleimani when he was on a peace treaty move in Iraq, military generals from Iraq were with him when he got blown up. So the United States and countries like the United States, imperialist countries, are willing to kill their own allies if it means that they're not going to have peace with their enemies. In our context, it's also important to realize the kind of measures that governments like the United States use against socialists within their own country. They'll be different from how they did it with the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union gives us a nice little contour, a little clue in how to combat some of these actions. I was very interested in the last paragraph where Comrade Stalin talks about how they get carried away by economic campaigns and by enormous successes on the front of economic construction. It reminded me very much of Stalin's speech he made to the Central Committee that was idled later on, Dizzy with Success. Stalin says, Such successes sometimes induce a spirit of vanity and conceit. We can achieve anything. There is nothing we can't do. People not infrequently become intoxicated by such success. They become dizzy with success, lose all sense of proportion and the capacity to understand realities. They show a tendency to overrate their strength and to underrate the strength of the enemy. Adventurous attempts are made to solve all questions of socialist construction, quote, in a trice, unquote. Comrade Stalin is talking about the relations between two bourgeois states. Even today, we see this happen all the time. I, mean, I remember a few years ago when this story broke out that we're spying on the Germans and we said all these things behind their back and talking down to them and all that, and we hate their guts, but we try to do business with them. And that wasn't during the Trump era. That was during the Obama era. And if this is how they act between a bourgeois and a bourgeois state. Imagine how they act to a socialist one. That's the thing that stuck out to me is like, look, 
they don't even get along with each other. Imagine someone who's opposed to them and how much they'll really hate us. That's what I just wanted to point out. In relation to modern day, this passage makes me think about when people say, oh, socialism isn't working in regards to Cuba and Venezuela because they're trying to build socialist programs around this horrible capitalist system while being within it so they can barely get it going. Economic blockade against Venezuela and Cuba. Cuba since 1961. How can you have any kind of a function of socialism or capitalism if you're economically prevented from trading with other countries? DPRK, there's an economic blockade, in case nobody knows, against the DPRK. When I think of the act of capitalist encirclement in the present day, what comes to my mind is the efforts of the Chinese government through the Belt and Road Initiative to alleviate the pressure on these countries. I see it as a way to alleviate this type of encirclement of capitalism that's being talked about here. I think it's obviously an attempt to circumvent the capitalist encirclement of the PRC. What we're going to do is we're going to give reading recommendations. Two pamphlets. One was called Soviet Anti-Semitism, The Big Lie. I think it's important people get this. They need to be prepared to deal with the lies that are still coming out now by Zionist organizations and also their friends in the West, the Social Democratic Movement, about social Soviet anti-Semitism. This was written in the early 40s. It was reprinted by a magazine that the party put out called Jewish Life. That was a party publication. And it's written by Moses Miller, who was a famous Jewish party writer. That's one. Soviet anti-Semitism, the big lie, and it goes in facts and figures. The other one is by William Z. Forster. It's called Communism versus Fascism. Very interesting. People who try to say communism and fascism are the same thing, this goes into the whole thing. It's by William Z. Forster, 1941. A reply to those who lump together the social systems of the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. I urge people to get that. And I don't know if I mentioned the last one, Earl Browder. Theory as a Guide to Action, a speech he gave in New York at the 15th anniversary of the Workers' School, 1515, anniversary of the Workers' School. That was in 1939. And very important, how it shows how theory is very important to practice, very different than most of the left groups today, which run into the streets, no theory, no understanding, rant and rave, go home, sit down, relax, and then they'll come down the next day for the next demo. By the time they're 30, 50, 70 years old, they're gone from the movement. Thank you. The first one is called Foundations of Leninism by Stalin, and it's a very good book to pair with Mastering Bolshevism, again, talks about very fundamental, basic concepts that are important for people in Marxist-Leninist parties to acknowledge, understand, and adhere to. Not just things that we read on pretty pages, but actually things that we sort of apply to our lives and our party work. The other one was not even a whole book. It was just section four of chapter 12 of the history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union is titled the liquidation of the remnants of the Bukharan Trotsky gang of spies, wreckers, and traitors to the country. If anyone wants to get a better handle on either the Zinoviev 
Trotskyite Block or Foundations of Leninism. Those would be my recommendations. Another really good book by Ludo Martins. It's called Another View of Stalin. It was published in, I believe, 1994. He was a Belgian communist, if I'm not mistaken. He spoke French. But he goes into a lot of detail about collectivization, about the Trotskyites, about the general lies about Stalin, bureaucracy, those kinds of things. I think it's important to know the history. I think a lot of people just kind of brush it off and say, that's not connected to our struggles now, but we as historical materialists understand that we have to learn from the past to build a better future. My main thing that is overlooked by a lot of us, especially the white leftists, it's really important that we also take a look at the histories of Africa and how that struggle is connected to ours and how ours is connected to theirs. And we shouldn't ever totally exclude it. Kwame Ture, he's got speeches on YouTube, and they're utterly incredible. And it's modern-day application of dialectical materialism. That's my main suggestion for anyone that hasn't heard of him. Considering Comrade Stalin says to stay vigilant, if we don't notice a threat, does that mean that we lower our guard? I would consider this exactly what Comrade Stalin is speaking of. So... What, as comrades, can we do to maintain any form of security? What I said then should not be dismissed. The time when that was said was when we had state power. We don't have state power. The ruling class is going to deal with what's closest a threat to them now. We're not on the horizon, so they're not going to bother us right now. But we are trying to keep a period of security in the party now, the worst thing that could destroy a new party is to start calling everybody an agent. I've been through that kind of situation, not personally, but I've seen it, what it does to a party. And it does nothing but destroy the party brick by brick, takes it down. In fact, Lenin warned us, he called it gossiping and rumor mongering. That's what Lenin called it. So we got to be careful of that. Thank you. It's a different level of threats. It's a different playing field between pre-revolutionary party and a party that has attained state power. And until class society is abolished, there are going to be those forces that are in opposition to the party. And what Stalin ultimately lays out further in the pamphlet is that there are times where the party and certain people in the party can take things way too far. And that creates resentment, especially in regards to rooting out rats or other people who are agents and wreckers. And the best way that Stalin comes to in order to address the issue of wrecking and spies is to improve the political development of the cadre. At that point, these wreckers and spies who really do not have the interests of the proletariat at heart will inevitably show themselves and out themselves. So that avoids the ultra-left and the overbearing nature of just getting rid of any people that you don't like. And Stalin actually talks about that explicitly in taking care with how we approach situations of spies and wreckers. Angela was mentioning that blaming and accusing everyone of being agents and starting rumors. I was in a former cadre party before, 
years ago, and I won't bother naming it, but I definitely saw that happening, and it is really bad. It could do a lot of harm to the party and also to camaraderie, and I think that especially with rumor mills, it is a form of liberalism, so I'm glad that we're learning it in this class, at least having a conversation about that. And I saw it on New Outlook Publishers, Fraud, Famine, and Fascism, and I think it's absolutely a fabulous book. It was one of the first pieces I ever read about Stalin, just really combating all the propaganda I had learned through my years growing up education. So I definitely recommend anyone to check out that book. There's a separate lecture from Comrade Martins. There's a quote from there that I thought was just very apropos. He goes, imagine being a professional conspirator and wanting to tell people that they must incite terror. You will not find any better formulas than those found in Trotsky's bulletins. These were, by the way, Trotsky published counter-revolutionary bulletins abroad and had them smuggled into the Soviet Union. And he continues, he was calling for individual terror to be inflicted upon Stalin and other party members in a very thinly veiled manner. So, counter-revolution in disguise. Something else that we have to look at with this is when we consider this, when we consider the so-called Great Purge, we have to remember that a lot of this was facilitated by Yezov and Yagoda. And Yezov and Yagoda were both found to be German conspirators. Yagoda was giving state secrets to the Nazis. Yezov was legitimately trying to get Hitler in power in the Soviet Union and admitted to killing people for the sake of killing them, to make Stalin look bad. He was trying to kill so many people that it made Stalin look like a monster. So we have to remember that there were some innocent people who died during the Great Purges. So we don't necessarily know who these people were because Yezov was a terrible person and did not name these people. We know that the people who were tried during the trial of the 21 all confessed, but we also know that Yezov led that trial. He led the investigation on many of those people. So we have to remember that when we look at this, we have to look at it as materialists and remember that the people who were in charge of putting these people away, the two of them were enemies of Stalin just as much as the Zinoviev Trotskyite group. The book Blood Lies by Grover Fur talks specifically about what Comrade referenced about how Yezha would basically conduct these wide-scale murders with the intent of destabilizing the political apparatus of the Soviet Union and to slander Stalin. And if you read that book, it gives first-hand primary source evidence. It was proven that he was not aware of what Yezhov was doing. So the idea that Stalin was pretending that he didn't know what Yezhov was partaking in is total fabrication. Another book, a book called Stalin, Man of Contradiction, 1987, by Cameron. Ken, first name is Ken, Kenneth. Very important book. Why is this an important book? It's an important book because it was the first book that was written by American communists that attacked 
the anti-Stalinism of Khrushchev. Up until that time, it was normal to see Khrushchev as a negative element in the communist movement. The person who broke through that was a Marxist comrade by the name of Kenneth Cameron. He also wrote a book about Marxism. He's often forgotten about. So I urge people to get it because it's historical. You'll see a new line that you didn't see before. Anti-party actions and anti-party forces come in many forms. We always think of those that Lenin spoke about objective results, not subjective results. What Lenin said is it doesn't matter why you do it, but the fact that you do it and it hurts the party, it makes it negative, your action. That's important that Lenin said that. So he's quoted as using the term, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Now you've heard of that before, but Lenin uses it. And I want to mention that now, because the party is a fine-tuning machine. We have nuts and we have bolts that make up the party and key people in key positions. When those nuts and bolts are gone or are missing, the whole machinery of the party stops. And that's the beauty of a communist movement, that we have democratic centralism where others don't, which means if that's the party line by democratic centralist line, then we support that position. And so when people take positions of the party, and I'm telling this to everybody now, that maybe this is the first time you're going to hear it. When you take a position in the party, a responsibility, you just don't have a responsibility to you or to others. You have the responsibility to the whole party. And if any reason you are gone from that responsibility, it's like the helm of a ship the person who's at the helm of a ship, all of a sudden they're gone for whatever reason. It's going to affect the whole ship. So I want people to remember that, that every action you do in a Marxist-Leninist-Bolshevik party, it doesn't just affect you. It affects the whole party. So people should think of that before they ever think of jumping ship. You're not jumping ship for yourself. You're affecting all your comrades that you worked with. And I want to end it with that. Thank you. Take care, comrades. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, or email info at psmls.org.